welcome to this podcast episode. I'm Gabrielle Aranka and I'm going to be speaking to Dillian McCabe. Dillian and I talk about the gut-brain connection, a healthy gut versus a gut out of balance. Learn about how the gut and brain are connected and listen for tips on how to bring your gut back into good health. Dillian, welcome. So nice to talk to you today. Wonderful, Gabby. I'm delighted to be here again. Great. And we're going to talk about the gut-brain connection. We are, and it's a fascinating topic. Okay, great. Well, I've got a few um, little, not questions so much, but more like things I've heard about the gut. So yeah, the brain-gut connection goes both ways. What do you say about that? And when, that, when someone says that, what does that actually mean? Oh, absolutely. It does go both ways. What happens in the gut will definitely impact the brain and what happens in the brain impacts the gut. And a simple example is, you know, when you're really, really stressed about something or very, very nervous, you'll feel like the butterflies in your stomach. So that's simply an emotion, anxiety or fear manifesting in a feeling in your gut. So that's just a simple example. And then, of course, when your gut is upset, it affects your mood. So we know that it's a two-way um, communication um, pathway, this, and, and we can't really avoid it. And we're finding out so much more about it today. So it's pretty exciting. Right. So really, um, it doesn't all come from the brain. It goes both ways. And so you can feel something and then send that message to the brain. And then the brain can process something and send it to the gut. And... It's really, um, it's curious to know which way, what's, what's going on there. And then obviously we're digesting our food in our gut. So how that comes into play. And then is it really what we eat then sending the feelings, sending the messages about what we feel? It's an interesting discussion, Gabby. And the first thing to, to keep in mind is that the vagus nerve, which is a huge nerve that travels from the brain right throughout all our tissues. And it's called vagus because it's Latin for wandering. And it is a wandering nerve and it sends up to 80% more information to the brain than what it receives from the brain. So that tells you how important the body is in terms of sending information up to the brain um, about what's going on in our internal organs and specifically our gut. Um, our gut has also been called our second brain because that's where the enteric nervous system lives. And the enteric nervous system has got a lot of um, input into the brain via the vagus nerve and obviously through what we we absorb and you know what we what we eat so we can chat about that in a little bit more detail um, one of the things i want to mention is that our emotions and our digestion are very much tied together and that's simply because when we calm and we relaxed and our parasympathetic nervous system is in charge which is also called our rest and digest nervous system then our food has a much better chance of being digested optimally because we're calm and relaxed. When our sympathetic nervous system is in charge, that's basically our stress nervous system. So when we eat on the run and we're stressed and we're busy and we don't focus on eating when we eat, that means our stress level is high and that affects how our food is digested as well. I mean, just think about it. If you're running through the jungle and um, you're being chased by a tiger, the last thing your body is going to say to your, to your gut or your gut is going to say, hey, you know, let's, let's relax a little bit now and digest our food. It doesn't work that way. So our emotions directly affect how well our food is digested and absorbed. And I mean, that brings us to the point, the truth of the matter, that we aren't really what we eat. We are what we absorb. Mm, interesting. And it just makes me think, and I know we've had this brief conversation before, um, maybe not on the podcast, but um, personally about the being mindful when you eat. Because when you observe what you're thinking when you're eating, I find that 
that's really fascinating when you go into that observation it's like the the mind starts to chatter when you eat and it starts to tell these stories and then you stop eating and then it stops chattering have you ever found <laughs> that have you ever, yeah and it's like oh wow what what is all those stories and they're usually quite stressful stories or something emotional so that's that's curious I think it is interesting and we have discussed this. I know we, we mentioned you going on a meditation retreat and how you ate silently. You know, nobody spoke when you were eating because you were mindful of the food. And I think that many of us should be adopting that kind of attitude to our daily life. And, you know, when we eat, because as you say, you know, you can be sitting and you can be eating and you actually lose track of eating. You get so immersed in your brain and in the thoughts you're thinking and what you've done before you sat down to eat and what you're going to do after you eat that you actually don't digest your food optimally because that means that you're not chewing your food optimally, which means that when it gets into your gut, it's in big chunks. It's not in a position to actually be um, digested and absorbed with ease. Um, the second thing that happens is that you don't actually have enough of a release of digestive enzymes when you're not paying attention to your food and eating and chewing well. So that means your gut has an, a second layer of challenge now. It doesn't have enough digestive enzymes to help it with its, with its task ahead. So that's the second problem. And the third problem is that, you know, we build a neural pathway for this kind of eating behavior. And whenever I see people eating on the run, you know, they're eating when they're in their car, they're eating standing in a line, they're eating at their desks and focusing on their computer. These are all not good for our digestive system in any way, shape or form, because in all of those instances, our PNS isn't in operation, our SNS is, and that directly affects the gut. And then, of course, we need to speak about inflammation. Right. Interesting. So inflammation, so that comes from stress? Look, inflammation comes from a lot of different places. Um, it comes from environmental toxins. It comes from the foods that we eat if we're not eating the right kinds of food. But stress has a huge role to play in inflammation. Mm. And our gut, unfortunately, is a very sensitive part of our body. I mean, 70% of our immune system resides in our gut. So when we have a problem with things like allergies, uh, things like food intolerances, all of this is a sign that our gut is actually not functioning optimally. So what does this mean? This means that that very sophisticated gut lining, which needs to be very sophisticated to allow certain nutrients across the barrier into our bloodstream and to stop others from going into the bloodstream, Inflammation actually causes two things. It causes a breakdown of that gut lining, which is, of course, naturally a huge disaster. And the second thing it does, it actually causes the bacteria that proliferate in the gut to change ratio. And that means that that bacteria that we need to be functioning optimally, that's good bacteria, starts dying off. And the bad bacteria that we don't need to proliferate starts increasing in quantity. And this is when we have challenges like gut uh, permeability, um, irritable bowel syndrome, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, all these kinds of issues build up um, and, and people experience them directly because of an inflammatory response that's starting to take place along that very sophisticated cell lining. Mm, gosh, that's fascinating. And, um, and it makes me think about the things that, you know, um, I have a real issue with sinuses and allergies, especially at this time of year. But I don't want to say this time of year, anything can trigger it. Like air conditioning can trigger it. Like if I get into a really cold room, I'll start sneezing or bus in summer. And, but particularly it's been very windy in Sydney the last past, past week and I just keep on sneezing. But um, why am I actually experiencing this 
you know, regularly, which I do every year, get this seasonal hay fever. And I know from, um, gosh, only like six years ago did I even develop it for the first time. I never had it before. So, and I was in a very stressful job. I was traveling with that job. And I remember very distinctly um, being in a lot of aircon, but it wasn't, it was stressful experience as well. And it's like, uh, maybe I've just set up a pattern that I haven't overcome and it must be, must be gut health related, uh, which I've never looked at as a, as a issue that is that being affecting my sinuses. Yeah, unfortunately, our immune system is very reliant on a robust gut. And it's very likely that when you went through that very stressful experience, some gut bacteria change occurred. And that could have led you to be much more susceptible to certain allergies. So I'd suggest, and this for anybody and any, any listener, anyone that's having some challenges, is to up out your prebiotic foods. And I preferred this response to taking probiotics. And I'll explain why. You know, when you take a probiotic, uh, you're giving yourself good bacteria, um, which is going into your gut and it's lasting for a certain amount of time. And you've got to repeat this every day, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But a longer term solution and a more sustainable one is to make sure that you're supplying a lot of the food that your good bacteria want. Because if you're doing that, you can miss out the step of taking probiotics and then just take prebiotics in the food that you eat. And they really simple foods. It's foods that most people should be consuming anyway. Um, anything from the allium family. So that's leeks and onions and garlic and, and chives, those kinds of foods. And then, of course, things like artichokes, which are very high in, in a great insoluble fiber, which is what this bacteria loves. And then, of course, you've got cabbage. And then you have foods like kimchi and sauerkraut, you know, and coconut yogurt is what I recommend to people as well. So all of these foods build up the good bacteria, give them lots of food to be able to eat. And in that way, you don't actually have to consume probiotics. I just think it's a, it's a simpler way to do it. And with those foods, you're also getting a whole lot of other great nutrients, not just, you know, the, the food for the, for the good bacteria. So it's kind of like a double-edged positiveness, kind of like a domino effect, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I'd much rather um, treat the symptoms with something more, like actually just eating food than um, um, probiotics, which I've had plenty of those as well. But I, I have to say I've never noticed like feeling very different from having probiotics. But I do like all those foods, uh, particularly cabbage. Love cabbage. I've got back into onions lately. And, but I, don't, I wouldn't say I eat a lot of it, but I guess I could build it up and eat, eat more of it in maybe every day, sometime, somehow have one of those foods in a greater quantity than I am. But also, Delia, what about um, the, what do you say about the gut has its own nervous system? Is that, so when you say nervous system, does that mean um, that that can, that's what affects, that's what's being affected by stress? Yeah, it's called the enteric nervous system. And, and researchers have named it the second brain because it is so sensitive and because it's got a lot of very important um, roles to play. And one of them, which we can just touch on now, is the fact that serotonin is produced in the gut. And serotonin is a very important neurotransmitter. Um, it's a, when it's produced in the gut, it's called peripheral serotonin. It's not the, the serotonin that's produced in the brain. 
So it's got a lot of other very important roles to play. And when someone's gut health is compromised, the ability to synthesize serotonin in the gut is also unfortunately compromised. So that means that appetite will be impacted. That means that sleep will be impacted. That means the ability to be happy and calm will be impacted, where, which is why we now know that if the gut is in trouble, people are more prone to depression. And we don't know exactly how that works, but we think there's a serotonergic mechanism that's impacting the gut and how the brain functions. And so we'll talk a little bit about the blood-brain barrier because we need to talk about that in terms of um, the gut being a, a, a nervous center as well. Um, just to make it really simple, the, the barrier that, it, that separates our gut and our gut contents from our bloodstream is a very sensitive barrier, okay? This is the gastrointestinal tract and the cells that surround it. They're very sensitive. And when they get damaged, they allow toxins to cross over into our bloodstream. So there are two things that happen here. Those toxins then can travel up to the brain, which is the danger, the first danger. The second danger is that something called the blood-brain barrier which is also a very sensitive barrier that separates the body and the brain to make sure that the brain is not susceptible to the kinds of toxins that can hurt us, and specifically the sensitive brain tissue, that blood-brain barrier also gets damaged from inflammation. And then when it gets damaged, toxins can cross over into the brain, and inflammatory markers actually travel into the brain and set off a whole cascade of negative activity in the brain some of which actually kills neurons. So being able to make sure that our gut is functioning well means that we're also ensuring that our blood-brain barrier is functioning well because the two are very similar in terms of their sensitivity and their sophistication and inflammation damages them both in similar and distinct ways, but none of them which are positive. So this whole enteric nervous system and the gut and its sensitivity and the microbiome and what we eat and our inflammation and our stress all impact the brain indirectly and directly through mechanisms, some of which we understand and many of which we don't yet. But it is a very important relationship between the gut and the brain and one which we can easily um, manage better and actually improve if we just focus on the kinds of food that we're eating and how are we eating? Mm, and I think that's so, I mean, and I know you said this before, it doesn't matter how organic and fresh your meal is. If you're stressed, it's not going to, not going to get the nutrients from it. And like you just said about being chased by a lion and you, you know, if you're stressed and your body's not going to be optimized, optimizing its digestion and that would cause inflammation. I, I, I gather. And, and I know when I was at that mindfulness retreat, not speaking because that pressure to speak, and make conversation and that's not you know you're not present with your food and your body and what you're putting into it and then there's also pressure of having the cheesecake at the end or something you know <laughs> something you may not you know and, and but also and, and you must have this experience when you go to a dinner and you probably eat things that you wouldn't normally make yourself because you know you're a healthy eater and so am I and but, you know, because you're in this kind of experience where people want to have wine and cake and, and you actually come away because you've enjoyed it. You actually don't feel the effects that if you ate that sort of thing at home, you know, I would feel that immediately, you know. And not, but I, that joy that you're having is probably not, it's allowing it just to move through your system and be digested easier as well. Like if you're enjoying and having a good time when, you, when you're having those things. So it is about 
that emotional balance and, and being aware of that emotional balance. But I'm really like information that, is there anything about information? So information on a, generally, is that just feedback to, from your body saying you've done something, it's put it out of balance? Would that be as, like if you have information? Well, a perfect example of what inflammation is, just imagine that you've got a thorn in your skin, okay, in your arm. And if you left the thorn there, it would start forming a red rim around the thorn. And eventually, the thorn would become really inflamed and the flesh would become inflamed. And you may even get pus forming there if an infection starts. Now, that is a simple example that we can see very clearly. Um, but what happens in the body, we can't really see that. But it's the same thing that's causing it and the same mechanism underpinning its activity. So let's just think about this. You take the thorn out, you clean the wound, and it gets better. Okay, that's, that's the way it works. And that's how it's meant to work. That inflammatory response is intended to come to the site of infection and actually fix it and actually get rid of the infection, get rid of the damage and heal the skin again. Within the body, it's a lot harder to see that it's there and that there's something happening, but it's exactly the same thing that's happening. There's damage that's caused. Now, the damage can be from a lifetime of abusing your body. You know, when people smoke, when they drink too much, when they're eating the wrong kinds of food, an inflammatory response will naturally occur because none of the cells can function optimally. So this means that all of those cells are battling. And so inflammatory markers are released from the cell to say, look, we're in trouble, we need help. And those inflammatory markers actually cause damage to the surrounding cells. So that's the inflammatory issue that happens. Of course, there are also environmental issues, things like you know, toxins in the environment, toxins in water that people consume, toxins from fish in the ocean, toxins from animals you know, that people eat. All of these toxins also cause danger in the body and, and inflammation because once again, they stop the cells from functioning optimally. The cells send out a, a signal to say, hey, we're in trouble, and then surrounding cells get damaged. When we're young, it's much easier to deal with inflammation because our body's in a much faster response. It's much more alert and we haven't caused so much damage, you know, widespread damage. As we get older, it's natural for our inflammatory reaction to actually subside, which is why it takes longer for wounds to heal when we get older. And while when we're not feeling well and we get sick, it takes us longer to get better. So this inflammatory response is actually a wonderful um, response that was designed to help us when there's a problem and it needs to be healed. The challenge today is that the cells very seldom get a chance to heal fully because we keep on giving more inflammatory um, you know, compounds to our body and we're exposing ourselves to more and more. And our environment doesn't support a reduction in this because more and more chemicals and toxins are being produced every year. So that's the challenge. It's kind of like fighting a battle um, with soldiers that are really getting tired and that's our cells. So everything that we can do to reduce the inflammatory response means that physically we'll be healthier and also mentally we'll be healthier because that same inflammation, as I said earlier, will travel to the brain and cause a challenge there. Mm. So inflammation is something we should all really take very seriously and, and deal with it as best we can to keep ourselves as healthy as possible. So when something does impact their functioning, it doesn't cause widespread damage. Mm, yeah, no, that's interesting. It definitely is a, a feedback mechanism. I like that analogy about the soldiers getting tired. It's like, <laughs> you're wearing me down. You keep doing this thing to yourself. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a challenge because, you know, as we get older, our cells do degrade in their capacity to function optimally. So that's a natural the side effect of getting older. We can't really get away from that. 
but we can make sure we're giving all the right materials to, to our body and our brain to ensure that it doesn't happen to the degree which would really start causing a lot of damage. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, you just feel that, you feel like you just need to look after yourself. That's how I feel. I just feel like I just need to always look after myself and nurture myself and do the right thing by myself. Whereas, you know, in your 20s, you just, you just don't care. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> go out all night and go to work. How Anyway, <laughs> but Delia, what would be a toxin that, you know, we are putting into our body that um, is quite apparent in food or when you said about fish in the ocean, I think I've heard that tuna's got high mercury. Is that the kind of toxin you're talking about? Like what kind of toxin? Or are you just talking about preservatives and anything that's just not good for you? Not, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is a long discussion in my book about this, um, yeah. you know, about the brain. I've got a big section on, I've got lists of all the toxins and I know that they are now more to add to that list. So this is a big discussion, but I think one of the, the easiest toxins to avoid is to avoid fried food. And this is important for a number of different reasons, um, which are many, but the most important one, which I like to explain to people is that your cell membrane is very, very important in relation to the health of your cell. And the cell membrane is made up of a lot of fats. That, that's one of the ways it functions is via fat and protein. So when that cell membrane becomes full of damaged fats, which people consume when they eat fried food and a lot of packaged food with damaged fats and oils that have been you know, extracted without taking care that the oil doesn't become damaged, all of these are different ways for fat to become damaged the cell membrane ends up with damaged fats in, it, in its makeup. And this means that it cannot communicate and function optimally. So it doesn't talk to its neighbor optimally. And with its internal workings and when it's replicating itself, it can't work optimally with these damaged fats. So that's one of the simplest and quickest ways to start reducing your toxic load is not to use any damaged fats. And that's fried fats, processed foods, fats, damaged fats in, in you know, containers I say to people um, when I run workshops and one workshop I actually asked them to bring the oil that they use in their kitchen and it was amazing to see all these different bottles of oil and I said okay everything in plastic let's turf and they were like why and I was okay let's talk about this if you've got any oil in your kitchen that is housed in plastic it means that the toxins from the plastic have moved into the oil this is what happens. It's a biochemical process that the oils actually suck the toxins out of the plastic. So then when you're using that oil, maybe you're using it to fry, maybe you're using it as a, as a, as a salad dressing, whatever you're doing, it's already got toxic compounds in it from the plastic. And these toxins are really bad. They affect our endocrine system, which is our hormonal system. So they're very damaging. So that's the first thing, Gabby. It's a long answer, sorry. But it's a, it's a very important aspect of health to understand. The first thing, get rid of all damaged fats. Mm, yes, gosh, um, that's interesting. That's, yeah, there's that. I've heard that about the plastic. I mean, I think you've told me too, and I've heard that about the plastic um, damaged fats. So, and I know you said the thing about the fry pan. <laughs> so, frying your <laughs> oil, just forget it. <laughs> throw the whole, throw all the food out. Yeah, just, Delia, just, just what? Just turf it. Yeah. Just turf it, yeah. And so, what, what do you recommend for a healthy gut? What are some. What, is it, what are certain things that someone can do to build up their gut immunity? Like you said about the prebiotics, what are, what are other things? Obviously the damaged fats, what else would you recommend? I think that people need to also eat a lot of fresh food. And the reason for that is not just the fiber content, 
but a lot of nutrients are damaged. For example, vitamin C is damaged by heat and light. And um, we need a lot of vitamin C because it's important for connectivity, uh, tissue, connective tissue, and it's important for healing and it's important for a number of other things, um, many of them in fact. And help, they also, it also helps us deal with stress. So I suggest that people eat a lot of fresh food because it's got a lot of vitamin C in it, natural vitamin C, with all the other components that come with it. And then, of course, you've got things like magnesium and bees and so on and so forth. So that's just something to really consider. Consider not just eating cooked food, um, but also a lot of raw, fresh produce. When people have a compromised gut, it is more challenging for them sometimes to eat a high raw diet. So then you would lightly steam the food or chop it up very finely and chew it very finely. And then you can even consume some digestive enzymes with the food if a gut is compromised. And the thing to do with the digestive enzyme is to open the capsule and spread it all over your food. It's tasteless, odorless, and it's perfectly fine. You don't even notice it. And that helps with the digestion of your food once it gets into your gut. So it makes it a little bit easier for your gut to digest that food. But I don't suggest people use it forever because you do need to keep our own digestive um, enzymes functioning optimally. So it's kind of like a, 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 just a bridging mechanism to make sure that our gut is working well. The other thing that I suggest is that people consume things, as I said earlier, a lot of onion, things like cabbage, uh, a lot of cauliflower, broccoli, and also things like artichokes, which is one of my favorite foods because it's got such a lot of um, fiber in it and it's really, really good for our gut. And I make a, um, a hummus with artichoke hearts in the hummus. And it's absolutely delicious. If you thought hummus was delicious before, this just elevates it. And eating that on a regular basis, I make a batch every week. And I use it in, you know, baked sweet potatoes. I use it in, I, I, I dilute it and turn it into a salad dressing. I use it with corn chips. I use it with corn tortillas. I use it for lots of different things because I know it's got just good protein, good fats, and this great, wonderful prebiotic artichokes in it. And another thing, weirdly enough, is raspberries have got a very high concentration of fiber in them. So they make a very good prebiotic as well. So you can make a raspberry salad dressing, which I've actually got in my second book. It's one of our favorite ones. And also just to toss it through your coconut yogurt for breakfast and throw, the, throw it into smoothies. So those are things that I suggest people get used to doing on a regular basis. This is not just a once-off seasonal detox or, or something like that. It's a daily practice so that you can slowly heal your gut. There's research to show that we can actually change the bacterial composition in our gut in, in as little as three days. So that is a great start to getting a gut working more efficiently. And then it's suggested that up to 12 weeks it can take for a gut to heal completely. Um, and one of the things that I suggest people do, which we haven't really touched on, but I will now, is something that nobody ever wants to talk about, and it's called transit time. That is how long from the time that you consume the food to the time the waste product of that food leaves your body. So the average time is between 12 and 48 hours. If it's very much more on the outskirts of those, those two time frames, then it's a bit of a problem because if it's too fast, you're not absorbing all the nutrients. And if it's too slow, putrefaction will then impact the bacteria and that's a challenge as well. So people say to me, well, how do you know? How can I measure transit time? And it's really simple. The simplest method is to take a tablespoon of white sesame seeds, stir them into half a glass of water and drink it. Note the day and the time, 
and then just watch when you go to the bathroom and see how long it takes. And that'll give you a very good indication of what's happening in your digestive system and whether you've got a challenge on either side. Yeah, right. Interesting. I've definitely never heard that before, but <laughs> that's great advice because, yeah, how do you transit times? That's, um, that's one thing I've never heard about. And I didn't know it could be up to 48 hours either. I thought it was meant to be a lot quicker. Yeah, I thought it was meant to be like twice a day you'd have a motion or... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's not about the, how many times you have a motion. It's about how long it takes that food to, to move happen. through your digestive tract. Mm. So if it takes anything less than 12 hours, it means it's going too quickly because the nutrients need to be absorbed into your, into your bloodstream and they get absorbed when they touch your gastrointestinal tract, which is like this big long pipe and if it goes through too quickly it doesn't have enough time to be absorbed but if it's going too slowly then you have putrefying material that starts accumulating and then that affects the bacteria in the gut and it also affects the toxins that that can then move into the bloodstream because that damages the lining so that's why the the transit time is really important and I, I normally suggest people just do it. You know, I mean, it's something that nobody wants to talk about, but the truth of the matter is we are what we absorb and we are also what we excrete <laughs> because <laughs> we need to get rid of stuff that we don't want and that shouldn't be in our body. You know, when we don't, we end up with a lot of challenges. So that's very important. Um, the transit time does also depend on gender. Women have a little bit of a slower transit time versus men. It does depend on age. It depends on activity level and it does depend on general health. And obviously it depends on diet. You know, if you live on donuts, you're going to have a real problem <laughs> because you're not going to have enough fiber to move that process starts through your gut. So that's something, something to keep in mind as well. Definitely. And, um, and that's interesting. So women, is there any um, research about why women have a slower transit time? I don't know what, what the evidence suggests. The reason for that is, Gabby, it may be hormonally influenced because our hormones fluctuate a few times during the month. And we know that estrogen is linked to serotonin, which a lot of which is um, synthesized in our gut. So if I had to just off the top of my head say, I'd say that the estrogen and serotonin link has got something to do with that slower transit time. But I'm not in 100%... Sure and that makes that. sense. Like when I think about, yeah, my cycle and that kind of thing, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. But, um, but it could have affected and change it. And, and that's uh, when I get really like, yeah, I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to get to the gym. And then, you know, then your cycle starts. It's like, I really don't feel like doing that. <laughs> there is this battle, isn't there, as a woman to overcome that, the, the cycle in a sense and, and work around it and work with it. But, um, but also I've noticed when I'm really like healthy and really happy and everything, like my cycle will come and go and I won't even notice it. Like it will be very, it would just be very um, like a light, you know, and it will be all very timely and, and no other symptoms. So that's, that's interesting to, to, to obviously observe as well. And so Delia, how about a fun fact to yeah, finish off our podcast today? What, what's a fun fact about the gut and the brain? Well, as far as the gut and the brain goes, a fun fact just about the brain, which will make us understand how complex it is. I've actually got two, one for the gut. We've actually got more bacteria in our gut than we have cells in our body. And we've got 63 trillion cells in our body. So that's something about the gut. That's an interesting fact. About the brain, we've got 
probably about 80, 86 billion neurons. And each of those neurons can make trillions of connections. Well, they make thousands of connections, which means trillions of connections overall. But the most amazing thing for me is that 20,000 neurons can fit on the head of a pin. I just think about how tiny the head of a pin is and 20,000 neurons can fit on top of that pin. So these are very, very sophisticated cells that basically determine who we are along with the rest of our body. And they are so, so, so tiny that you, can you imagine 20,000 on the head of a pin? So that's a fun fact that most people don't know. And each of those neurons can make thousands of connections with other neurons. So you can see the sophistication that exists there. And then of course, when the gut isn't working properly and the blood brain barrier isn't working properly, the toxins that cross over impact those neurons significantly. And that means that their sensitivity and their sophistication becomes vulnerable to that inflammatory response and to the toxins that exist. So there we go, two fun facts. That's incredible, gosh. And, and you would, and you'd only find that out if you're a neuroscientist, I'm sure. <laughs> How would you ever know that or even get to, get to see the, the neurons, you know, close up and how many are on the head of a pin? Delia, thanks so much for your time. And I'm gonna go away, I'm gonna get artichokes. I'm gonna get onions, cabbage, cauliflower. And I love all these things too. And I'm going to work on building up my gut and getting over my, my allergies, my, my hay fever. And I hope you have a great day. Thanks for joining me. Excellent. Thank you, Gabby. Delightful as always. Have a wonderful afternoon. Bye.